Love. This is Crystal coming to you um, with a quick note before we jump into the episode, The Death Day Party. This Zoom recording, for some reason, has a few glitches and some echoing that you'll hear throughout the episode. Please keep in mind that this is only our third episode we've recorded via Zoom, so there are some growing pains that we are trying to work through. We are aware that this is not the best quality we've ever brought you, and we hope that you will stick with this episode uh, to hear some good insight, even though the quality is subpar. Uh, We are working on correcting that going forward, and our next recording, we should hopefully be in person together anyway. Um, But the future episodes that we record on Zoom, we will certainly try to make sure that this is not an issue. So thanks for sticking with us and enjoy the death day party. Welcome friends once again to another episode of the Harry Potter book club. I'm Trevor. I'm Sylvia. I'm Vera. I'm Alex. I'm Crystal. And I'm Matt. This week we are on chapter eight of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, the death day party. But before we jump into our discussion of this next chapter, uh, we wanted to do a little housekeeping. First off, Crystal made a really wonderful observation and we were texting back and forth about it after our uh, last episode. uh, And she wanted a chance to share that with us. Yeah, so um, as you all know, at the end of the last episode, we were uh, talking about Gilderoy Lockhart and his fan, Gladys Gudgeon. And I mentioned that Gudgeon was a type of fish. But when I later did some digging um, on dictionary.com, because this is a fun habit or hobby of ours is the etymology of names, I discovered that Gudgeon, Gladys Gudgeon, who is a fan that was writing to Lockhart regularly and even on in book five, that Gudgeon is also an archa- the archaic use of it, um, is a person who is easily duped or cheated. So I thought that that was a really interesting um, way that J.K. Rowling is sort of giving us a hint about what we are going to learn about Gilderoy Lockhart, that he is somebody who does cheat people out of the truth often. Yeah, that's really great. One of those hidden gems that shows up when you do a little digging and find out that uh, Rowling was being clever once again uh, with the the words and the names that she offered. We did have a piece of fan mail uh, sent to our email address. Remember, if you've got a question or a comment that you'd like us to consider on air, you can email us at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. Uh, a listener named Lena uh, offered us a really wonderful, uh, encouraging message, uh, but in there said that she had a question for an upcoming broadcast, namely, why did you guys start the club in the first place? Now, that's something that we may have talked about over the years, but we might want to refresh uh, particularly new listeners' memories as to what exactly kickstarted this podcast to begin with. Well, I, you know, we're, we've all been big Harry Potter fans for years and years. And, um, it inevitably comes up when we're, when we're together hanging out and, um, yeah, it just was one of those things that one day we were like, well, we should just read it through together and talk about it. And that would be really fun. And then Trevor and Sylvia, you know, came up with this idea. Well, why don't we just put a mic 
you know, in the middle of the table while we're talking. And then if it's any good, we can share it with people, other people that care about Harry Potter. And so from the very first chapter, it was meant to be a podcast. Yeah, you'll notice from the early days, the uh, production quality and the sound editing was, uh, we'll say it was minimalist before minimalist was the trend. Uh, and that's because we literally just put a microphone in. We, we have always prioritized the friendship, the feasting, and the fellowship to get alliterative, the conversation. Uh, it's always been about the bonds that are forged, shared, and strengthened among, among six friends who legitimately love each other and love these books. Um, so over time, we've tried to get a little bit more sophisticated as we realize that, hey, there are other people joining us on this journey. We need to at least consider them and try to make sure that the sound quality is not terrible. Um, we've been thrilled um, as we've started uh, churning out some episodes regularly again um, in the wake of COVID-19 to see how many folks are, are downloading episodes and joining us uh, in this Harry Potter read-through. We are humbled and thrilled by that. Uh, but still, uh, the priority is, has always been, and will continue to be uh, the friendships that we share um, and the insights that we can offer uh, to one another. Um, we're thrilled, of course, listeners, to have you joining us. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what you get is a conversation among friends. So with that, we'll jump into chapter seven, the death day party, nope, chapter eight, the death day party um, in Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Uh, we're told that October has arrived. There's a spate of colds among staff and students and Madame Pomfrey is working up her pepper up potion that works instantly though it leaves the drinker smoking from the ears. And Ginny Weasley has been looking pale lately. Yeah, so the pepper up potion. I just really quickly wanted to notate that its appearance reminded me of one of our uh, previous episodes in the Chamber of Secrets. I think it was probably Flourish and Blots, chapter four, um, where we mentioned or we talked about how the Potters got their wealth. And if you all remember, it was because the Potters were from a long line of inherited money because of some very popular potions they invented, one of which was the Pepper Up Potion and the other was Skelligro. And we see both of those um, in this book, which I think are interesting. Um, this is our first glimpse of it. Um, and it was just a reminder that this potion is still widely in use and apparently is paying dividends to Harry even now. Yeah, I thought of that too. I also love the little um, tidbit that it's raining right for days on end and Hagrid's pumpkins at this point have swelled to the size of garden sheds. I just love that massive pumpkins out in the yard. Which is interesting because it sounds like they're attributing it to the rain and not Hagrid's pink umbrella, which we talked about the last chapter, I believe. Pumpkins still need real things to grow. True. Light and True. sun. And <laughs> They don't call it miracle Grove for no reason. And even if they, even if you add in a whole bunch of extra to boost the growth, you still need that water. Yep. Uh -huh. 
Well, I thought it was interesting that her choice of words for uh, Jenny Weasley having to take the pepper up potion was that she had to be bullied into taking it by Percy because that sort of implies that Jenny knows that her paleness and her whatever other symptoms she might be exhibiting are not a result of a cold that the pepper up potion would be healing. So I thought that that was an interesting little, um, that did not even occur to me. Oh my gosh. Chris, you're so right. She's being drained by Voldemort. Oh, yeah. I mean, on the 20th time through the book, it's like, Oh, Jenny's pale. Okay. Well, we know why. And yet here there's, there's like plausible reasoning for uh, why we would completely not suspect her. She's a new character. She's innocent. She's wide-eyed. She's a first year. She's pale because it's cold season. She's being bullied uh, into taking it because, well, she's a Weasley and she's hard-headed, but also she probably doesn't want to get attention from Madame Pomfrey and then have this potentially unpleasant uh, potion experience. So it's the sort of thing where you've got reason on top of reason to just bypass it. Mm-hmm. And yet it's a beautiful little nugget of the plot that when you're looking at it through the right lens, um, it, it fits together in really beautiful ways. Going so, back. Oh, sorry, Mary, go ahead. I was just going to say, so so now we, um, we're seeing that despite the horrible rain, um, the Quidditch team is still practicing and Wood is just hellbent on making sure that the team is in the best shape they can be and for good reason because the Slytherins with their new brooms are so fast they're just seven green blurs um and so Harry is coming back to the castle covered in mud and muck as we move into this sort of next vignette of the story what did you have Crystal? Oh, I was just going to um, give appreciation for J.K. Rowling's like choice of words when she writes, because I really loved that she used Oliver Wood's enthusiasm was not dampened when oh. everything else is soaking wet <laughs> because of the torrential downpour rain. I just thought that was a cute use of that word. Mm-hmm. I love the description of Harry squelching along the corridor. <laughs> We talked about it in our last episode where Ron burps up a little slug and it just dribbles out over his chin and how that language is so evocative and specific. But it's also like silly language. The words sound funny. Mm-hmm. He burps and dribbles a slug and now he squelches. And I mean, it's a, you literally hear it. Um, and we run into nearly headless Nick the ghost of Gryffindor Tower. Another stunning performance by John Cleese. <laughs> well, I find it astounding that nearly headless Nick was hit 45 times with a blunt ax. I just sat and thought about that today when I read it, maybe for the first time. And I 45 times, was he alive the whole time that was happening? No oh, way, no. right? No way. Then how but we did should know that it was 45 times. Who's probably told that after the fact? You have to consider that at this time, these were public spectacles. Yeah. You know, people would people get a picnic together. They would do this for fun on a Saturday. 
And instead of going to the movies, they go watch a hang-in well, or we also, another kind of public execution. We don't know the um, manner either. He doesn't say he was executed. He was executed. Yeah, no. Do you said? guys do you guys know why he was executed? No, I don't remember. What was the reason? He, um, so Lady Grieve, who was some an acquaintance of his, I guess, uh, asked him to straighten her teeth. And he misfired and caused her to grow tusks. And it was a uh, death by decapitation was his sentence after doing so. Wait, so the penalties so he, for misusing what, your magic were what, harsh. Where did he, he learn this? Sounds disproportionate. Just yeah, he practiced magical orthodonture improperly. And got, Which is interesting because Hermione uh, later, you know, tries to fix her own teeth in like book four or something. Like so that must be a normal thing. But he made her grow a tusk. And I don't know exactly where the information comes from, if it's something J.K. Rowling released, but I, it's on, it was on Pottermore a long time ago, which is no longer even called Pottermore now. It's like Wizarding World or something. But I remembered it today and just rechecked my facts to make sure I was right. Yeah, to your point, as I read uh, nearly Headless Nick's description, I was sort of aghast at how graphic the description mm -hmm. and then you turn the page and it keeps on going well if it had been we, I, we all wish it had been quick and clean and my head had come off properly it would have saved me a great deal of pain and ridicule and then you know there's the uh the letter from the headhunt uh leader sir patrick delaney podmore that you know this the decapitation humor just keeps rolling uh <laughs> across these pages yep mm -hmm. <laughs> uh yeah but i'm, I'm like Wow, this is written for twelve-year-olds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like but that, that actually fantasy doesn't pull its punches. I mean, to me, I find that perfectly uh, like attuned to her audience for of twelve-year-olds. Any any twelve-year-old, I, I think most, at least twelve-year-old boys had re read or heard of the Horrible Histories series, which is just a series of short history books that get into all these gory details and they were in immensely popular i don't know there's something both revolting and delightful about <laughs> about this graphic detail yeah it's and it's simple enough to i think that it's not as graphic as it might be it's kept sort of on the surface level of it you don't delve too deeply into it and so i think that's what keeps it being you know whimsical and silly even though if you really sit and think about it, you're like, wow, that's, that's really horrible. Which we've said from yeah. chapter two of yeah. book one, like, wow, this is child abuse, but it's, it's related whimsically. And if you don't actually think about it in realistic terms, if you think about it as the narrative of a fantasy plot, you can, you can move past it, sort of chuckle at what Rowling is doing as a storyteller and, and move on with the action. It reminds me of the number of birthday presents, uh, you know, 3742. Crystal, you can correct me on the exact number probably, but um, it's like an absurdly high number that it kind of fits into the, um, yeah, whimsy. That's a good word for it, of the story. Um, but yeah, it just, it made me think of that number of birthday presents because when I first read chapter one 
and I was pretty young, I was like, whoa, that's insane. You know, it, it stuck out to me um, and, and really stuck with me. Yeah. Well, I thought this uh, chapter was just fascinating, just in the respect that it, it takes you into this whole sub uh, culture, really, of, of ghosts that mm-hmm. you don't really get. I mean, and so it, I mean, and I don't want to get, you know, to Nick's birthday party, uh, you know, until we get there. I mean, that's death day party. But I'm, so, I'm sorry, you're right. Death day party. <laughs> uh, but, you know, you kind of get it here a little bit with the, the letter he got from the headless hunt. And, you know, you see that there are clubs and there, there are things going on that there's so much more going on in the wizarding world that we, we have no idea about. And like the, the, the ghosts here, I mean, it was just fascinating to me. It's a whole new world within the Harry Potter world that we still know very little about. Yeah, speaking of which, can we just talk about the mechanics of this letter? Um, since we'd like to talk about magical mechanics. A ghost How letter. Is Nick holding it? Is it a ghost right? letter? Yeah, it is. It's a ghost letter. Is that what it is in the movies? Well, actually, he doesn't reference, he just mentions it in the movie. Once oh, okay. again, my request has been denied. I'm but he doesn't have sure a letter. That Sir Patrick Delaney Podmore uh, did not actually write this. I think it was ghostwritten. Oh my <laughs> goodness. <laughs> we told you to get out. that out of your system, Trevor. We did tell you to get rid of these jokes. That's That was awesome. <laughs> I loved every second of it. But yeah, um, he says folding a transparent letter as he spoke and tucking it into his doublet. So oh, it does say like, transparent. I yeah, missed it does. that. There's okay. like ghost paper. Right. Okay, ghost so right. That, so it, that brings up a good point. Like, are there ghost props? Like they can create right. new ghostly sorts of things or do you have to die with it or or like the something. bloody baron's chains for instance like how does how do they this doesn't make sense to me also yeah, we get lot, we get to the mechanics weird. of food later at the death day party yeah. like if you can have ghost paper why can't you have ghost salmon good point also in the letter he's saying there are hunt activities like horseback head juggling and head polo i mean how can you actually play with someone's head if you know your your hand goes right through it? You go, I mean, I, can another ghost hug and touch and it's their it? own heads, huh? It's their own ghost heads. I know, but with yeah, but, but what if it's polo, polo? Then he has to pass around. Oh. Yeah, polo. I mean, yeah, somebody's head so is presumably rolling around, and you're on the ground. Yeah, yeah but him. they're all ghost heads, and they can touch touch ghost things well you're just it assuming. seems like it yeah i, I mean maybe yeah <laughs> you're right but, i am speculating about but it. I, I, we don't know this this is a <laughs> brand culture that we're we're experiencing right now for really the first time when you read this yeah oftentimes also done advanced degrees in ghost physics all right she's not assuming <laughs> anything <laughs> um another thing i mean we often so the this whole idea of like this this event right the headless hunt and this association the huntsman it it seems clear that this is something that is like not necessarily bound to hogwarts and we often have this association at least i think in the u.s that like ghosts are kind of place bound we often will like look at a spot and like look at a house that's said to be haunted or something 
And usually the explanation to the haunting is something related to tying that person to that place. There's an amazing, um, uh, amazing production company called Grim and Mild. They have a number of podcasts um, that sort of sit at this intersection of, of like folklore and history and ghost stories. Um, and um, anyway, they do a lot of, they do a lot of stories that, that are emblematic of this. Somebody passes away and their ghost or stories about their ghost remain. Um, tied to place. Tied to place. Yes. And in, and I remember we had one podcast where we were talking about like, why are all, all there's so many ghosts at Hogwarts? Like, this is a lot of yeah. people. Do they all die here? What's their tie to this place? And besides the gray lady, we don't really see a tie for anybody else. And we find out later, I was going to bring this up later when it comes up, but we find out later that, that all of these, a lot of the guests at the death day party have come from somewhere else. Like one lady is coming from Kent. So ghosts in this world are not tied to a location in any, in any way. They're kind of free to roam, which is interesting. It's a whole ghost community and you can like have buddies that live other places and write letters to them. And form associations, then go on trips. And send them by ghost owl. Is that how they go? I don't know. I guess that makes sense, <laughs> ghost owl. There's ghost horses that they're riding, but there's there's no reference that I'm remembering at least in in the in the books, in the canon, about how ghosts are made in the wizarding world. Like, Professor Binns just woke up one morning as a ghost and kept teaching. Yeah. You know? So his unfinished business was he wasn't done with the unit yet, or whatever, you know? And so <laughs> it, it just doesn't seem to be, like, it doesn't have to be a murder or a tragic death or anything like that necessarily. Yeah. Make a ghost. Hmm. So I've got kind of a, a meta- question here about uh, narrative structure and plot development. So moving from the mechanics of ghost existence to the mechanics of storytelling, this is a short book. It's a lot of narrative in, I mean, it, it's actually 341 pages, but they're like double spaced, you know, thick margins. It's, it's a quick moving book. Um, there's not a lot of wasted space, and yet it feels like there, there's not a lot going on here. We're introduced to a bit of ghost culture with nearly Headless Nick and his Headless Hunt stuff. We've got um, Nick being down because of his rejection uh, and Harry having the problem with seeing the Slytherins with their new... Uh, broomsticks for Quidditch. And so they're they're in a position where they're going to help one another out as the chapter develops. But as, as I'm moving, I'm wondering, because Rowling always um, has plot action that is advancing the narrative forward. There's always clues or pieces that are going to recur later that are significant. And especially if you've got eyes to see, you know, she's putting the pieces in place for the story to fall together. I'm wondering, is that happening here? Am I missing something? I feel like there, there are a number of episodes here where we sort of get uh, the sort of culture 
of what's going on. We get a little bit of characterization, but it's not clear to me that she's doing something with those moments. With the moments between Harry and Nick right now, you mean? That, but also as we move into the episode with Filch. Oh, the I think the part with Filch is very important because um, we learn he's a squib. And that's important for his cat being attacked. It's like, it's ba- he's basically a mudblood or something similar in that he's a non-magical person. It's shameful to have been born into a magical family without magic. And, At and least also, that's how I've always in, interpreted it. Yeah, and, and also I think with uh, Nearly Headless Nick, I mean, well, number one, in the very beginning of the chapter, we're told that it, it rains and Harry needed to be muddy and wet in order to get in trouble with Filch. Uh, he also needed to be muddy and wet in order for Nearly Headless Nick to do him a favor to crash, you know, or get Peeves to crash down the vanishing cabinet. Uh, and then after that, uh, you know, he invites him to his death day party, which then that gives uh, a narrative device for Harry and the gang to be in that place right at the center of something big that's getting ready to happen again. Now, that's that's really helpful uh, for for me. It was. Seeing the thread tying uh, Filch's. Filch's magical status to Mrs. Norris's um, attack. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because then all of the elements that you guys just really helpfully described, they do, they bring us, there's uh, the sort of mutual help that nearly Headless Nick and Harry can give. There's the encounter with Filch and the revelation there. There's the move into the death day party and meeting a significant character there. And then finally ending with, Mrs. Norris. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. And I know we've sort of advanced <laughs> preview uh, for the rest of the chapter right here. But seeing that helps me appreciate that these aren't just sort of empty scenes that are taking up space. They are actually building on one another in that very intentional way that, you know, like I said, we've always noticed. It was a little bit harder for me to catch as I was reading through it and trying to put those sort of storytelling pieces together this time. But that's really helpful. Thanks for that. Mm-hmm. So we, we did our best to make some of these, um, some of these names like Sir, um, Sir Patrick Delaney Podmore and Nick says his full name. It's Nicholas Demimsey Porpington. Um, we tried so hard to make those fit into like the etymology thing that we're always doing with rolling and basically what we came up with is the real, real old names. Mm. <laughs> so it makes them sound very old. And that's about it. Beyond that, the meanings of them didn't really fit with the story, right? Yeah. I did there's... wonder if, uh, if, oh gosh, what's his name? Podmore. What's his name? Yeah, Podmore. Patrick if Delaney. he was any relation to Sturgis Podmore, who we yeah. meet in book five. That's right. the only thing his name kind of brought up in my head. Yeah, and there's another there's another Podmore. Um, 
in Harry Potter. It's kind of a deep cut. I forget his like other name. Credited, but he's in like no, Fantastic he's, Beasts series. Yeah, he's noted. He's noted in Fantastic Beasts, and he's also, um, I forget. Anyway, point is, I know there's two other Podmores out there. Okay. There's no known connection between them, um, and as far as I could find from entomological research, Podmore pod is old that old english related to the word for pole as in tadpole and more just means more as in like a heath or a wild place so a wild place full of frogs it's not exactly a didn't work out so good no doesn't really so anyway um after trying to make that work we moved on and um so this is where we we see mrs norris um coming into play he, uh, Harry looks down and finds himself gazing into a pair of lamp-like yellow eyes. It was Mrs. Norris, the skeletal gray cat who was used by the caretaker Argus Filch as a sort of deputy in his endless battle against students, which I love that language, a battle against students. He's caring for the castle in a very defensive way, as though the kids, it's, the castle is not there for the children. The children are a blight on the castle and he's mm. constantly protecting the castle from the students. Um, yes. Yeah, I really like that, the way that she said that. Yeah, Filch comes in yelling, filth, mess and muck everywhere. I've had enough of it, I tell you. And it, it strikes me, we very rarely see Filch in the entire series of books where he is not sort of in this sort of frenzied agitation, this sort of embittered rage. As, and as his scene goes on, he never dials down the temperature. He's always running at 11 out of 10. And it, it just seems to me um, that that has to be exhausting. Like, yeah, he's a fictional character, but we, we have the picture of, of someone whose emotions are constantly um, raging within him, that he's constantly taking out his anger on the students who are under his authority. Um, and I think, you know, as, as this uh, chapter goes on, we get, again, one of those sort of sympathizing psychological reasons for why that may be, why there may be a kind of bitterness that's sort of fuming under the surface constantly. But so it strikes me that he's, he's an exhausting character. Well, I, I, it struck me, I mean, you're, you're right in that we do sympathize with him when we find out he is a squib. Um, but, you know, it, it's, he, I, you know, nearly headless Nick says that there were some third years that accidentally plastered frog brains all over the ceiling. And, you know, Harry comes in dragging mud and who knows what else. And this is, I mean, imagine you've been cleaning all day. You have no magical powers. And it's like someone like a, a professor could come through and with literally the flick of a wand, clean all of that up. And it's just, to me, it's, it's heartbreaking in a way that he is just, he's doing manual labor uh, in, in ways that muggles would, you know, in a magical world. And you're right, Trevor, we get into, some of the psychology of perhaps why he is so angry uh, during this chapter. Well, he's also got the flu. 
And instead of being, you know, able to rest, he's still wandering around the castle, cleaning up these messes. Like there's no system for (laughs) sick days at Hogwarts or somebody couldn't be like, oh, sure. I'll walk around the castle and, you know, use my magic to clean stuff up for you. So you can take a nap there, Filch. Nope. None of that. I also wondered I know the pepper up potion is meant for colds, but a flu is essentially like a severe cold or correct me if I'm wrong, anybody who knows the difference, but could he not take some of the pepper up potion and feel better quickly like the students or does it not work on squibs? Do you think? would. But I mean, he's like his, I mean, the language she uses is he has like drips coming from his nose. So he's so sick. Surely it could make a dent in his sickness. It honestly seems to me like Filch's job is really just like a form of punishment. Like it does sound to me more like his very quote unquote responsibility is just a a, a torture. I mean, it's, it is requiring him to do something that is absolutely unnecessary. Mm -hmm. But he endlessly. I'm thinking, I mean, he's getting paid and no one is forcing him to be there, though. I mean, why does he do it? That's a very good question. Well, I think if you're a squib and we see he's, I mean, this is jumping ahead, but he's going to be looking at the quick spell things to try to learn magic. I think the only other option for squibs is to be integrated with muggles, which we learn Ron's second cousin or something does. He's an accountant. Um, If you are, if you really, really want to be a wizard, then integrating with the muggles isn't the way to go. You would want to be around magic. So that's why I see him being there. So he's got limited options, not just for employment, but for existence Mm -hmm. within the world. And yet, um, like even the structure of the job is like borderline workplace abuse. You've got a single non-magical person in charge of taking care of an ancient stone boarding school <laughs> with that children. can move on its own. <laughs> yeah, with children who are learning magic in the beginning stages. Um, that's that's not a job that any human being. I mean, it would be a lot for someone with magical capability simply because the mess would never end. Um, but for him, I don't know, it it raises questions of justice all over again. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this with, uh, la- I think it was last episode or the episode before that with Hagrid, uh, when, that when we were talking about his wand and the fact that when the truth ends up being revealed, he does not receive restitution in any meaningful way for the magical future that was taken from him. Uh, and there's there seems to be a, a kind of injustice being uh, constantly perpetrated against Filch as well. It's it's interesting because I've never really thought of Hagrid and Filch in the same category, but they are two you know uh, men living with little to no magic and taking care of the grounds and the building at Hogwarts themselves. And just the total difference in character there. Um, They're kind of foils to each other where Hagrid is, even though this huge injustice was done to him, he's still kind and he's 
you know, sensitive and he's um, doing his job with joy and he, he trusts Dumbledore in this very sweet childlike way. And, you know, he's got friends amongst the teachers and he befriends the students and Filch is just this bitter, like husk <laughs> of like a man who's like bare, doing his job out of spite. And, you know, it's, it doesn't seem that he has a, a place there the way that Hagrid does. Hagrid has the hut and he has a home and it feels warm and homey. Mm-hmm. And um, we see Filch's office and it's it feels like him. Like it's dingy and windowless, lit by a single oil lamp. And it's not like a real home that he's made there. Um, and to add to the contrast, the well-fed dog versus the skeletal, skeletal cat. cat. Yeah. Um, so, but another interesting question brought up by the environment, by the office, we noticed the faint smell of fried fish. I don't think I ever recall hearing about there being a fry, fry up at Hogwarts or, you know, them having the chippy come by and bring, bring that around. But somehow fish and chips appear to be accessed by filch on the regular not for the students i took that to mean that he'd been frying fish for mrs morris oh Oh. people fry fish for their cats i think someone who has a relationship with their cat the way filch does the answer to that is yes that would never even occurred to me which does bring up have you all heard the fan theory that mrs norris is a probably going to butcher this word maledictus what do you guys know what maledictus is from the no okay Um, like nagini the snake is a maledictus it's a, a woman who is accursed and is accursed to live in a bestial body of some sort and Nagini is the only one confirmed, but there are tons of fan theories out there that Mrs. Norris is actually a person. Um, and that's why she has this weird magical ability. Um, not so much that she's like a, an owl and that she has magical ability, but that she's actually a person who was a magical person that Filch was in love with or married to or whatever. Um, and that's why he is so attached to her and gets so upset. I mean, he threatens to kill Harry when he finds the cat hanging. Um, and then he maybe fried her up this fish and treats her very lovingly. Uh, yeah, I, I think that there's there's room for that theory, for sure. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you guys had heard of that. Circumstantial <laughs> evidence is best, I think. Well, yeah, definitely. But it, I think it's an interesting theory for why he is a bitter person hanging on to magic, uh, living in this castle with his cat, his beloved cat. Um, yeah, I, I definitely, like I said, I think there's room for the theory, if not proof of the theory. One of the immediate well, questions. The, oh, sorry. She is the only animal that we find getting petrified. Everybody else that gets petrified is a person or was a person or was a or, person yeah nick yeah but that's interesting because it sounds like she's being looped in with all the other people yeah my, my question though is when did rolling decide that nagini 
is a maledictus? Like, when was that element of the magical universe actually in her imagination? To my knowledge, we we haven't heard of Nagini yet, right? Right. I mean, Voldemort is not embodied yet at this point. Correct. Uh, So it's one of those sort of compelling retrospective theories Mm -hmm. that if you've got the fully formed magical universe, the pieces can come together in a nice way. But in the actual process of writing, the question, was this in the author's mind as a possibility, like a sort Mm -hmm. of teaser that she's laying breadcrumbs down for her readers? Uh, That would be a more of an uphill climb there. Definitely. One of the things though that gets me, um, sorry, is, is just that that I think that's a really poignant contrast that uh, you've all brought out between Hagrid and Filch, both of them with sort of magical question marks hanging over them. One's the caretaker of the castle. One's the groundkeeper outside. Um, They have both experienced forms of bigotry, prejudice, and sort of a perpetual injustice that's committed against them. And yet they've responded to that pain in fundamentally different ways that's reflected in the actual ethos of their homes. I love all that. I think that's really beautiful. But both of them love Albus Dumbledore. If there is any commitment that either of them have, it's to Albus Dumbledore. And with the flick of a finger, Dumbledore could care for them in meaningful ways, but he does not. You know, we often laugh because in later books, we'll see Filch sort of sniveling up to Dumbledore in really sort of (laughs) disgusting, um, sorts, yeah, sniveling kinds of ways. Uh, grabbing at his coattails almost, begging for attention, trying to do the right thing to make the headmaster proud. And it's funny, but when you think, it's like, this this man is really desiring desperately the affirmation and in some sense, the, the approval and affection of the one person that he respects above all else. Um, and so I, I'm just thinking that it reflects poorly on Dumbledore that there are so many people in his orbit that aren't cared for in the ways that are completely um, within his capacity. Any thoughts on that? Am I just too easily offended? Mm. I mean, I think there's merit there. I think... You know, we, I feel like Dumbledore is, is very sympathetic and inclusive in his um, desire to sort of shelter and protect those that are different and ostracized. Um, but it always is the same thing. It's come and have a place at Hogwarts. And that's not all like we see that with Lupin and we see that with Trelawney like it's a it's a way for him to protect and to give room and board and to to give a place and a home um 
And then it, it usually ends there. And, you know, we speculate that he helped Hagrid with the wand and the umbrella, but we don't know that for sure, really. And so, and, you know, maybe he had something to do with the correspondence course. You don't know, but it's just, it, it seems that his, his way of inclusion is, is just to say this, I have this home I can offer you. And then you take it from there. You um, may get home. I'm wondering, is there any type of like redeeming, I, I can't remember, but is there any redeeming thing, event that happens uh, to Filch later on in, in other books? I mean, I, I, I'm no. having trouble. Okay, yeah, I'm no. racking my brain and I can't think of it because, you know, I mean, psychologically, I think for him, I mean, Dumbledore knows, has to know that, you know, he is wanting to do magic. I mean, I'm sure he's been there long enough. And, and so to see all of these children uh, learning magic and, be, and becoming what he so desperately wants to be um, is almost like a poison pill for him that he has to take every single day that makes him more vindictive. And so it's, it's incredibly sad. And you can tell that it obviously touches a nerve uh, when he finds out that Harry has read the quick spell letter on his desk because he immediately changes from he's, he's so furious with Harry uh, at forgetting mud on the floor. But then his his anger reaches a whole new level uh, when he finds that Harry has done that. And then all of a sudden he lets Harry off without giving him a punishment, which is completely unlike him. So you can tell it reaches a magnitude of anger that Harry and probably most other students have not ever witnessed before. But to be clear, I don't think he let Harry off out of anger, like, like frustration. You know, I'm so angry, just get out of my office. That uh, may not be what you're saying. I, I, no, I think he's embarrassed. I mean, this right. is something. Yes. Yeah, just wanted to clarify that point. Yeah, he was something that embarrassed. Well, he's so angry that Harry has, has found this letter. He's ashamed, really, uh, I think, deep down on a level. And he doesn't want other students that don't already know, I mean, what, who he is, basically, a school. Right. Well, yeah, that's, that's what I was going to say, is it was more, I, I took that, like him letting Harry out of punishment as bribery, almost. Uh, I'm going to let you go. You, you may not have read this, but... Uh, just in case you did, you're no, no punishment, just leave my office. Yeah, there, there does seem to be an implicit bribe there. I think, though, it, it could also be read as just the power of shame. Mm -hmm. uh, there is a chance that you now know the source of my deepest shame, and I cannot be in your presence any longer. So we'll do whatever we have to to get you out of this room because I can't have you look at me. Um, Man, I, I really do not like Argus Filch. Our conversation has made me um, feel for him in ways that I don't know that I ever have. Um, these conversations can be helpful at humanizing uh, wittily drawn sort of detestable characters. There's always something under the surface though. Can we just talk though about Harry getting up in somebody else's business 
Yeah. I mean, what this is a this is a poor character move. Oh, look, a nice envelope addressed to someone who is not me. I think I will open it and look at it. And this is one of several times uh, in in the course of the books. <laughs> we always point them out when they happen. When Harry is he's not living up to the sort of nobility and virtue that we want in our protagonists. Um, it, it does move the plot forward. The truth is revealed about um, Filch in a way that helps put pieces together later on down the road. But man, it's, it's kind of enraging when you see what Filch goes through and you actually dwell on it a minute. And then the invasion of privacy that uncovers Filch's shame um, and Harry here is, is the wrongdoer. Yeah. And I got the impression that this was a closed envelope that Harry actually opened. I could be wrong, but it's no, it says Harry flicked open the envelope and pulled out the sheaf of parchment inside. So it's not like it was just a sheet of paper that was laying on his desk. This is an absolute total invasion of privacy. And I found myself wishing that it was the opposite because that at least is you know, it's on the desk. He's sitting there by himself alone. He doesn't have an iPhone to scroll. Sure. He's reading the envelope in front of him, but he, yeah, this is a poor character. Poor this is character a federal choice. offense, Harry. <laughs> yes. Maybe not in the magical world, but certainly in the Muzzardy, Muzzardy. <laughs> Muzzardy world. It's, it's interesting though, because you're right. Like rewrite two sentences. And you could have told this story in a way that sort of preserves Harry's integrity. Maybe his curiosity gets the better of him because Filch was in the middle of reading his own open mail and the sheet of paper has been left exposed on his desk. But instead, the story is crafted such that Harry has to commit an offense against another human being in order to learn this about him uh, again i think that humanizes harry he's yeah. not a knight in shining armor he is a second year adolescent um who doesn't possess the maturity that we sometimes wish that he has he is learning and in process himself um in ways that complicate uh you know sort of simplistic narrative construals of good versus bad no like sometimes the the good guys generally speaking make bad decisions and mm -hmm. we get angry at them and then they have to experience the growth and particularly the compassion toward others which is um which is a category that harry is sometimes woefully lacking in yeah i think it's also um be because everyone is going to believe once everything goes down that Harry is the culprit here, that Harry is the one who opened the chamber, um, or at least they're steadily going to start believing that, right? And so I think this is setting setting that grain of, of mistrust in, in Filch's mind that this is a bad kid. This is not a kind person. And then when he sees him later in conjunction with the attack on Mrs. Norris, he will say, yes, this boy did it. 
I already know him to be someone that can't be trusted. And it sets, sets us up not to trust Harry too, because of Filch's status as a squib. I think that this is a narrative device that we learn to doubt Harry just as Justin Finch Fletchley, gosh, that's hard to say, um, and other characters doubt him. And even Harry at one point wonders like, well, am I? Or Hermione maybe voices like me. We don't know if you're descended from Slytherin. It was so long ago. So there are all these little nuggets that we're getting that kind of make us question, well, is Harry good? Is he setting something loose in the castle that we don't see? Um, so yeah, that's that's interesting. Speaking of things we don't see, Filch looks triumphant and then, quote, that vanishing cabinet was extremely valuable. And is this not the first time where we hear mention uh, or maybe the second time we hear about well, the vanishing cabinet? Well, this is where we hear about the one that's at Hogwarts. Yes, that's right. The first time at Hogwarts yes. where we hear about a vanishing cabinet. And, yes. you know, earlier when we were in Borgen and Burks, we hear about the one that's there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, so this, I had forgotten about this episode. This is what broke it. Peeves dropped it from a height. <laughs> and so that's why it goes into the Draco room has to repair it. Yeah. Um, so even though they're twinned, it's, it's not going to work because Peeves threw it off of whatever. So can I tell you, um, with all of this in mind and how many combined times have we worked through this? I completely misinterpreted these lines the first time I was rereading it in preparation for our podcast. Filch was looking triumphant. That vanishing cabinet was extremely valuable. And I was like, did he trap thieves <laughs> in the vanishing cabinet? So I was reading it like valuable as in he's excited and the vanishing cabinet sure was useful. It was valuable oh. for getting thieves. And I'm sitting here like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, what's going on? And then it was, oh, duh. There was a big crash. The vanishing cabinet was valuable. Peeves has broken it. And now Filch has a claim yeah. that he can stake against Peeves and, and get him booted. But man, for some reason, the gears were not uh, turning at 100% efficiency for me as I was working through this <laughs> chapter, apparently. I'm just getting things, and I'm like, what in the world does that mean? Can we, though, note the, the testimonials for Quickspell, even yeah, if just I, briefly? Yeah, I wanted to bring that up, too. It, this letter reminds me of, like, an infomercial for, like, ShamWow or something like that. It's for the wizarding world, you know? I mean, it's, you feel out of step in the world of modern magic, find yourself making excuses not to perform simple spells, well, there is an answer for you. I mean, it's right there in the text. I mean, and it just, it drips with that kind of infomercial type, you know, vocabulary. Yeah, I'm but then the testimonials. Marketing. What? The testimonials, though, are like um, bitterness <laughs> made victorious. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like everybody made fun of me, but now I'm the center of attention. My wife used to give me the stink eye, but now I can turn her into a yak. And it's like, <laughs> these, these are the celebrations of people with a chip on their shoulder. Yeah. And it appeals to the kind of person like Filch or, you know, uh, in an unforgiving sort of wizarding hierarchy of a magical culture, uh, 
people like Filch feel the pressure to perform. And this is offering a solution to that burden so that you can stick it to the people who have always walked on you. And so it's interesting that the tone of even those humorous testimonials matches the tone that we see Filch carrying with him wherever he goes. It also feels to me, I mean, I know this is beginner's magic, but it also feels to me so hopeless. Like when you hear the first lesson, holding your wand, some useful tips, like even just holding the wand is going to be really tough for you if you have no magical ability. It's like, how can you possibly get to to a normal life as a wizard from here? It feels... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Vera, that's that's interesting because I even notated that same thing because it sounds to me like these people taking this quick spell course are uh, bad or um, just not very talented witches and wizards, but Filch is a squib, meaning he has no magical ability. So how are these meant to help him? So, I mean, I'm curious what you all think. Is it being marketed to squibs or is it being marketed to poor witches and wizards? Yeah, that was a question. And is this actually going to help Filch? That that was a question I had as well. Is is there, are these like uh, witches and wizards like dropouts, you know, like I, you know, didn't want or didn't go to school and, and they, but they still have some magical ability. You're right. I, I don't know. That was a, a good question. And if it's for just people who are not very talented with magic, then how sad is this for Filch? Like how desperate, Trevor, you said this chapter kind of humanizes him. And I, I definitely think it does. I mean, even down to his like dripping nose, which just made me feel so bad for him. I, this is just a heartbreaking thing to me that he is surrounded by magic in the castle with these children who are like learning the thing he doesn't have the ability to perform looking at this quick spell leaflet that Harry then sees that leads him to his ultimate shame or someone else knowing his ultimate shame. It is just a gut-wrenching scene. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, we were talking about him having the flu and the way that he's portrayed here with like the red face and the purple nose and the dripping snot and the tartan scarf wrapped around him. And when you read it as a kid, it's funny. But when I read it as an adult, it's so sad. Like, let yeah. this poor man go to bed. What yeah. a horrible day he's having. Um, and then on top of that, to be shamed by a student who through his personal things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but we find out that uh, it was it was Nick who orchestrated um, Peeves's dropping of the vanishing cabinet to help Harry out, which was really nice. Um, and it worked out really well and sort of tit for tat. He says, well, Harry, I don't suppose that you might want to come to my death day party and make a famous appearance because all the ghosts care about current events and would like to see a current famous person. So here it, it seems nearly headless Nick is holding out hope that Harry's appearance will somehow ingratiate Nick with Patrick Delaney Podmore and the Headless Hunt crew. Is that the sense that you all got? In which case, Harry goes from one person who's trying to 
move into a particular social circle to another person, this time a ghost, who is trying to move into a particular social circle. Um, and so we've got outsiders all around in this chapter. Uh, and, and it seems like Nick thinks that Harry could be his, a last-ditch effort at, at getting him some, some good grace there. Yeah, that's interesting. I never really thought about Nick as an outsider, as someone that's later petrified. Um, but he is. I mean, like, as we see through this, even at his own birthday party, he, his death day party, he becomes kind of fringe. Everybody's paying attention to the headless hunt. Um, and I didn't really think about him that way. I just thought of him as a device for, um, is it Justin at that point? Yeah, Justin sees the basilisk through him and that's mm -hmm. why he doesn't die. But um, yeah, he's, he's an outsider here too. That's interesting. Well, I just wanted to quickly mention that uh, Nick says, this Halloween will be my 500th death day. And I just thought it was an interesting thing that he died on Halloween, just like Lily and James Potter, but that Harry doesn't mentally notate it. You'd think that him saying like, my parents died on Halloween would be something, or sorry, Nick saying my death day anniversary is on Halloween that Harry would make a mental note of that. Well, and I feel like it's not something that's on Harry's radar kind of throughout the books like he's never sad on Halloween he's never like no yeah. I want to go to the feed I just want to like sit in my room and think about my parents like that never happens for him it's just another day so it's really interesting he doesn't really observe the anniversary of his parents passing yeah on this day in particular yeah I also I just thought I, I just wondered if there was any underlying reason why JK Rowling chose his death day to have the same anniversary as Lily and James like there's probably no significance but it, it's it seems weird otherwise to to have the exact same day um, unless it's just because there's a feast and it's a narrative device to get it at the same time as the feast and that's probably what it is well that and ends up just, being important because we need yeah. to separate the three from the rest of uh the castle so that they are alone in the corridor at that pivotal moment right yeah but it could have been done during a regular night right i mean you know yeah the, the students have dinner and then yep. they they leave but, but they go to dinner at different times there's right. like a window that they can go to dinner at a feast you're all sitting down together at the same time so i think it, yeah i think thinking that through it probably was just a, a plot device to get them separated it's also a fun spooky thing to do on halloween right right i was gonna say death day party yeah, murder I, I think, and halloween is a common thing yeah which i think makes more sense if you're i don't know trying to recreate the author's sort of mental workings that hey death day party this is going to be a room full of ghosts it works to do it on halloween yeah yeah i was looking at his his death year 1492 and i did my digging around Columbus sailing the ocean blue. Oh. Yeah. Uh, there was no connection. <laughs> okay. As far as I can tell, nothing happened on Halloween of that year uh, related to 
Columbus that was of significance. <laughs> so we're like oh for three in the in the digging mm-hmm. department for this chapter. Well, you guys want to move to the actual death day party? Let's go. That's again. I mean, like I said, it was the uh, the interesting thing about this chapter to me was just getting to delve into the ghosts world and their subculture. Because even Ron, who has lived in the wizarding world his entire life, I mean, he said he asks, "Why would anyone want to celebrate the day they died?" You know, and so like even he, a wizard who is been in this world doesn't understand ghost culture um and we get a a rare glimpse right now of a party of ghosts i love that ron says it sounds dead depressing (laughs) i was able to find one thing on the harry potter wiki about this broadly about this question of why celebrate one's death day what is what does that mean for a ghost Um, and we're not told that this is sort of the universal experience, but I did find a quote and I can't, it does not tell me where this came from in the books, uh, or the, or the films. They seem to sort of mishmash those all together. But what it says is that when Sir Nicholas was explaining how he chose to, how he chose, that's how they put it, how he chose to remain among the living as a ghost, he says, quote, I was afraid of death. I chose to remain behind. I sometimes wonder whether I oughtn't have. Well, that's neither here nor there. In fact, I'm neither here nor there. I know nothing of the secrets of death, Harry, for I chose my feeble imitation of life instead. It's interesting that on the one hand, we have this very raucous celebratory death day that we attend earlier. And there's this very melancholy feeling later on um, associated with essentially the same event, the same day. You thought this party was raucous? Well, yeah, there was dancing. There was a a huge group of horsemen that come in and play games. Okay, so it seemed to me that it was a massive down, the party that Nick threw was a massive downer until the headless hunt showed up and made it a party. All right. That's yeah. the feel that I got. Definitely. So like, let's let's take a moment to describe the setting here. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. So, okay. So we are, we come down, um, they pass by the great hall, which was glittering invitingly with gold plates and candles. And they go instead to the dungeons. And the passage leading down there is um, lit by long, thin, jet black tapers, all burning bright blue, casting a dim ghostly light, even over their own living faces. It gets colder, they're shivering, and then they hear music that is not music. It is like, Harry says, it sounded like a thousand fingernails scraping an enormous blackboard. That is what they are dancing to. Um, dead music. Dead, yeah, but I mean, like, yeah, that doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't. Why, why is everything like backwards? Instead of being happy, it's sad. Instead of being good music, it's intentionally bad music. Why the food is rotting, which kind of has an explanation, but it's dark and dreary and cold. I mean, it's not inviting for a party at all. Why is everything backwards? Does anybody have a thought on that? 
I, it, not inviting it's, for the living yeah so it feels to me like they've had to over exaggerate the trappings of the living in order to make it enjoyable for the dead so like the food they had to let it rot so that they could almost taste it and the music is so loud and horrible so that they can almost enjoy dancing to it, you know? And, and it, to me, just spoke to this like half-life that they're living, it's not really living, and they don't know anymore how to, how to live well. They don't know anymore how to enjoy these things. I could have almost believed, yeah, I, I like that, that, that explanation, and I would have gone with that. It's just that when the headless huntsmen come in, yeah it's all it's jovial and, and they're still fun yeah. yeah and like people are, are laughing and it's it's like okay well we get that as living beings you, you know but you know if you're trying to describe the ghost world as it's completely the opposite because they're not living they're dead whereas we enjoy the things living and then they enjoy other things being dead that would have made sense to me on some level, but then you bring in the headless huntsman and it's like, okay, well, I, we get that as living beings. So I, I don't, I don't know. Hmm, that's a good point, Pat. Um, that does make me almost feel like nearly headless Nick here is intentionally playing up the victimhood of being a dead person, if that mm. makes sense. Um, exaggerating kind of like the air said this over exaggeration of like woe is me i am dead <laughs> let's celebrate it by not celebrating it uh -huh. the tragedy of it celebrating the tragedy of it by literally physically everything being dreary and awful yeah even yeah. the music but you would think that the ghost who can hear presumably <laughs> excuse me normal music you think that they would want to hear normal music yeah like if you enjoyed it in life like going on a hunt or something like that i mean then you would think that they would enjoy music uh, you know and i and i even because they're still technically part of the living world they're they're dead but they're still I don't, I don't even know how to say it. They're living in the living world. You know what I mean? Or they're existing in the living world. Um, yeah. Haven't quote unquote passed on. So I, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've often told Matt that this chapter is my least favorite chapter in the entire Harry Potter canon because of the descriptions of the food and Argus Filch's like dripping bulbous nose. This <laughs> chapter to me <laughs> turns my stomach on multiple levels. Um, but I really enjoyed it more, reading it more intentionally this time and thinking through some of these things, even though I don't have a good answer for why this party is, well, this lack party is the way it is. Yeah. yeah. Unless it's just supposed to put us in juxtaposition to the actual feast that they are missing upstairs. I don't know. 
when it comes to making the food stronger so that the dead can almost taste it, I'm sitting here thinking, well, garlic would have done the trick. <laughs> Get some curry powder, paprika, <laughs> and some garlic. Heck, salt the thing and add some blue cheese. You know, it's like there are ways to manufacture yeah. strong flavor mm -hmm. that don't depend on Putridness. putridness or in some <laughs> cultures you control putridness in order to maximize good flavor yes kimchi something like that i was gonna say I, I think that this that at least does point to some i mean i think a fact that we we know that the process of food you know whether it be a fruit going from ripe to rotten or meat similarly um going from fresh to rotting is is a spectrum and that there are a lot of processes where that that line gets very blurred whether it be in in the aging process when you age a steak um or when fruit goes to rot or becomes fermented obviously things like sauerkraut or kimchi yeah there there is there is a grain of truth to this obviously taken to extreme yeah well big plot point here. we meet a very important character at the death day party um moaning myrtle who hermione tells us haunts the girl's toilet on the first floor and then of course there's that she the whole conversation about she haunts a toilet yes it's very uncomfortable to go in there no one likes to use it um and then peeves is his fantastic self um eavesdropping first and then and then calling Myrtle over and telling her that um Hermione is saying some not very nice things about her and causing a big blow up between the two of them all I can I, picture I, is the moaning Myrtle in the movies that looks like Daniel Radcliffe with pigtails and a wig yep I love the dialogue here um I so I go back and forth between hearing Peeves in the voice of the films and then in the voice of Gollum. When he says, rude you was about poor Myrtle. It, and I'm like, that's a, that's a Smeagol thing to say. Like he, he mixes his syntax in very Gollum-like fashion. Mm -hmm. But then he bellows, oi, Myrtle, which is the most British thing a poltergeist could have. Oi, hey, come over here. Um, and but the, but then Myrtle, her man, she is something else. You know, it, no matter what happens, uh, she is is constantly reading the worst, constantly sort of living into this inferiority complex, suspicious that people are are mocking and gossiping about her or thinking ill thoughts of her in their heads. And the thing is that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you are incessantly insecure, such that you're always defending yourself against potential senses of inferiority, you will alienate other people and consequently you will alienate yourself from others. And I'm, I, we're almost primed you know, after the Filch episode to like not judge a book by its cover, there could be more ticking underneath the surface. 
Um, and then we get to Myrtle and it's like, man, it is hard to give you the benefit of the doubt. And then Peeves shouts, Pimply, you forgot Pimply. When she's listing all the names that people called her. Can I just clarify one thing you said, Trevor? Um, you said the voice of Peeves in the films. Did you mean Jim Dale when you listened to the audiobooks? You're right. Peeves doesn't okay. appear in the films. Right. Not. I really wanted to see him. Right. No, I'm thinking of Jim Dale in the audiobooks. I absolutely am. Wow, which just goes to show how much all of the different formats for intaking your Harry Potter stories <laughs> just mashes up. Because if you hadn't pointed that out, I would have I would have gone on talking about Peeves' voice in the films, you know, uh, for the rest of the evening. I just wanted to make sure you didn't know of any like deleted scenes or something with Peeves that I've somehow missed, but I think no, we've the, even yeah, talked bonus, about it. Bonus features <laughs> on the super duper deluxe edition. <laughs> no, you're right. No, that's uh, it's Jim Dale's voice that, that I hear that in. Absolutely. So then the headless hunt bursts through the dungeon wall and crashes the party. Um, and I, I assume they were invited, right? Because Nick wanted Harry to talk him up to yeah. um, to uh, Sir uh, Patrick. But, I, you know, they, they steal his thunder and they kind of turn his party into their own thing. And it just is like, why do you want to be with these guys, Nick? <laughs> these are not, you know, they're not looking out for him. They pick on him. And then when he goes to make his speech, um, they they start, what is it, Sir Patrick, they start playing head hockey and, on, and the crowd starts paying attention to them. So they totally, you know, pull focus from him on his own death day. And it's you, basically like the politics of high school, right? Yeah. I mean, is that like, this is like Mean Girls, the Broadway show. <laughs> Not the just kidding but i mean it's the same sort of dynamics isn't it yeah that's exactly what i thought when i read this i mean it's just it's nick wanting so badly to be in the popular crowd and it's like they're just rubbing his nose in it just saying like sorry sorry man you know and i mean just it, he's trying his best to, i mean to ingratiate himself you know with these other ghosts and they just will not ha let it happen and you feel so bad because they seem to just revel in or at least sir patrick seems to just revel in just i mean making fun of nick and 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 knowing i mean he knows it he knows he knows he's got nick right where he wants him but he's doing he's making fun of nick in an in a subtle way in a way that isn't direct uh and that is very high school. It's pointing out someone's flaws in a funny, jokey sort of manner so that they feel like they can't even get angry with you almost because you're not outright calling them an out outcast or putting them in the margins. It's a, it's a subtle jokiness. Yeah. Or drawing attention to the thing that you have that the other desperately wants but doesn't have. Mm -hmm. Namely, yeah. a head that is fully separable from, from <laughs> one's body. And everything that uh, 
Sir Patrick does is flaunting that one aspect of his experience that he knows is like a dagger in in Nick's back. Yeah. Well, uh, Harry and the gang see this and they say, all right, now may be a good time to kind of step out. It's, you know, everybody's looking at this game that's play- being played of, of head hockey and they agree to go. But then Harry hears rip, tear, kill on Halloween. I know yeah, we've, thing- we've asked this before, but it immediately raises the question to me. The basilisk does not eat people it drives me up the wall and it never has he's like i'm so hungry yeah you're hungry because you don't eat people i know right like you have created this mess basilisk like why does he not eat mrs norris after he petrifies her i mean i guess i understand that if something sees you through a refracting medium and they become petrified you don't want to break your precious fangs on stone. But the thing is, there's no evidence that the basilisk ever eats anyone, including Myrtle, who died. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they took there's her body nothing out. in the stories or in the Harry Potter, like, extra canonical writing that suggests the basilisk has ever eaten a victim. So the fact that he's going through the walls talking about how hungry he is is perplexing to me because it sets us up to think that people's people are in danger of being ripped limb from limb, not merely of catching eyes with a magical serpent and and perishing. I wonder, though, how much and this is complete, completely me theorizing how much of this, though, is because it's Jenny Weasley controlling the basilisk and she's still early on in her relationship with Tom Riddle's diary at this point. So maybe she still has some of her own will that she's exercising. And I don't know if it's because the way I think of the mechanics of the diary is she writes in it and Tom Riddle possesses her in some ways to do certain things, but she's, she's pale. She knows she's obviously at, at, in battle with herself. Like she's, she knows something's going on. There are many instances in the text that we can see where she's not feeling well, or we can talk about them later, but I wonder how much of it is Jenny still keeping the basilisk from killing well because i like trevor said like trevor said he didn't eat myrtle he just killed her and that was not that was when tom was in control tom proper live tom right so yeah i don't know it's even though he's saying these things the basilisk it's like but you're not really going to, are you? You're just going to look at folks and then slither back. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point. <clears throat> One thing I thought, Trevor, um, you mentioned in the last podcast when Harry heard the Basilisk for the first time outside of or in Gilderoy Lockhart's office, 
that it's it seems to be the first time the basilisk is released and it you kind of mentioned there being a connection with Harry's thoughts he was saying it's time to go it's time to literally leave this office um and then the basilisk exits the chamber as if he had some sort of similar thinking well i it it struck me that he says so hungry for so long because Harry is hungry in this scene. They haven't eaten. They've been at this horrible feast of dead things. And so I, I just thought that that was another interesting instance where it seems like his, his feelings are being somehow connected to the basilisk, even if that's not a real thing happening. It, it could work here as well. Yeah, because it doesn't seem that Jenny at this point is... Is she's not controlling the basilisk, is is she? Like, yes, the, the Chamber of Secrets has been opened at this point, but the basilisk, like you said, was crawling through the pipes before this, mm -hmm. right? It's, it is an interesting connection, uh, a sort of, you know, Mrs. Norris and Filch have their, like, animal-human-psychic connection, and it... it I, I think at very least it's a a really interesting coincidence that the basilisk's stated intention matches Harry's psychological state in both of these first episodes. Yeah. I don't know where Jenny, I mean, I assume Jenny is writing on the wall at this point because as the basilisk is out, he at this point attacks or looks at Mrs. Norris and petrifies her. So I'm assuming that right now she's writing the letters on the wall. So I think she's well, controlling it. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if she, I've never gotten the sense that she's like controlling it and that, you know, um, I guess mind control, you know, like, oh, you go and do this. But I always got the sense she released you know, the basilisk and that's, that's, and the, the basilisk knows what to do, you know. I, I but mean, she has to be controlling it in some way. Otherwise, if the basilisk is this creature that wants to rip, tear and kill, it would just go free among the castle and rip and tear and kill. It goes back into the chamber at, as she commands it. Yeah, well, she can't really <laughs> command it though, right? I mean, it, she it has, has to be commanding it. She has to open the chamber and I mean, is it going back to the chamber well, of its own free will? Well, the, the only re the only reason I say is she she herself is being possessed, like you said, by Tom Riddle, and the only way she can really speak to the snake is in parcel tongue, and Jenny doesn't know that. It's yeah, only Tom. But if Riddle. she's a mediated parcel tongue mm -hmm. through her possessing agent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's I think that's what Tom tells us. She she opens the chamber. She controls the basilisk. Um, yeah, I, and she I also do think she crawls the message. It. Yeah, with parcel time. So it, it's still possible though that while the basilisk is in the pipes, its thoughts are mirroring Harry's, mm -hmm. and that Ginny is in the process of opening. The Chamber of Secrets and summoning the basilisk to attack Mrs. Norris. Yeah. So here's a question. Um, as the basilisk is traveling, he says, I smell blood. I smell blood. 
So my, and I always thought that it was like, you know, the blood in someone's veins that it was sensing and that it was going to attack. Um, but when we get to the attack site, we find the message scrawled on the wall in chicken blood. So my question, I guess, is, is that the blood that it was drawn to or was it Mrs. Norris's blood that drew it? Um, and, you know, just the order of things, like did, did Ginny scrawl the message after the attack or did she scrawl the message during, or, you know, if anybody has any thoughts on that. I always thought it was the chicken blood that he was smelling because it's exposed blood. I kind of took it like a vampire. The more exposed it is, the easier it is to smell. Also, you know, practically speaking, I think she had to begin writing this well before, because, I mean, I don't think she has much experience writing on the wall with chicken blood. And I mean, she writes, the chamber of secrets has been opened. Enemies of the air beware. I mean, that's that's a mouthful to write in chicken blood on the wall. Practically speaking, she had to have some time to do this. And it couldn't have been when Harry first heard the snake because, you know, they basically race out of there. I mean, I, I would imagine, and I kind of get in the couple, in the page or two that he's running after the snake. It only takes him maybe a minute or two to actually get to the point where they see this message written on the wall. Yeah. So all that to say that, yeah, I think she was doing this before and then she was done. And then the snake came and did its thing. Right. Looked at the cat. Yeah. Looked at the cat. So here's another question. Probably the basilisk wasn't set on Mrs. Norris or maybe it was. Um, but is, is that part of it? Is, is Ginny slash Tom able to target specific people? And it seems like yes, because, um, or is it just an inherent thing that the basilisk knows it's supposed to be after mudbloods? Um, and then if so, like was the cat the target as, as related to Filch the squib? Or was there another target and the, the snake just didn't make it in time before it had to like sneak back into the pipes? So I need Mrs. Norris to be the target because otherwise the question that I led with like 90 minutes ago about the coherence of the structure of this chapter <laughs> falls apart. <laughs> I think it's really compelling to see Mrs. Norris as a kind of animalic representation of the squib caretaker that is also sort of a lower level first attack so that the intensity of the, the attacks can grow. I mean, Draco yells from the sidelines, you'll be next mudbloods. Like we've started, it started with an animal, um, but it's, we're, we're going to humans next and uh at least one slytherin is really pleased to hear that um but i think again with the question that that i was prompted to ask like why are we why why do we devote half of the chapter to a scenario with nearly headless nick that brings harry into filch's office to learn that he's a squib which humanizes him but it doesn't do anything to the plot but it does if Mrs. Norris 
is a sort of proxy for an attack on the squib who's defiling the castle. Yeah, I definitely think that it is a targeted attack on Mrs. Norris. That's, or at least that's how I've always interpreted the text, is that it was an attack on, specifically on Filch for his squibbiness. But that's a good point that it does sort of give us a, a level to move up to with human attacks. I thought it, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. I thought it was interesting um, that Mrs. Norris is hanging suspended by her tail after we get the chapter or after earlier in the chapter when we hear that um, it was common knowledge that Filch used these manacles that are in his office, highly polished manacles because he wants to suspend children by their ankles. So I kind of thought that that was an ironic twist that now his beloved cat is suspended by her tail upside down. That's good. This raises though more timing questions. Yeah, why hang the cat? I mean, Harry's Harry's racing the basilisk upstairs. Ginny has to let the basilisk petrify Mrs. Norris and then suspend her by the tail and then get the heck out of Dodge before anybody comes to detect her. I'm having a hard time seeing how the, the timing lines up because it, I mean, Matt made, made a good point. We've got um, foot high words spelled in chicken blood in all caps with proper uses of the comma. <laughs> so she's even attending to proper pu punctuation. And then she's got to do this, this work with actually suspending the, the cat and that that adds onto the timeline in ways that are hard to to picture how this is all lining up. Well, I rewatched this scene today um, in the movie, <coughs> and I thought it was interesting that here we get the words. Um, Harry wonders if the voice is a phantom to whom ceilings don't matter, which is our first clue that the snake is in the walls or in the pipes. But in the movie, he just like puts his ear to the wall, like, oh, it's in the wall. So they make it much more obvious in the movie. But there yeah, is still a clue in the text. Yeah, coming out of a death day party, we are led to believe that it's a ghost, mm -hmm, like the right. bloody baron, whom even the ghosts are... Um, staying away from. So that, that language of phantom, it, it's sort of an, an act of um, distraction, uh, misdirection from, from a storytelling perspective. Finally, though, in a, in a chapter about death, we've got one character who is deeply alive, Draco Malfoy, had pushed to the front of the crowd, his cold eyes alive. We've heard of all sorts of people pale in this chapter, but Draco's usually bloodless face is flushed as he grinned at the sight of the hanging immobile cat. Draco, in a, in a chapter about pale death, is flush and vibrant with life, mm. um, looking on at the havoc that's about to be wreaked on the mudblood population of Hogwarts. Friends, that brings chapter eight 
of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets to a close. If you have questions or comments about this chapter or really anything about the Harry Potter universe, you can always reach out to us at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com or follow and talk to us on Instagram or Twitter at hpbcpodcast. We love to hear from folks and we'll be happy to consider featuring your comments or questions on an upcoming episode. But until then, Mischief Mischief Managed. Managed.